Welcome to all the horror podcast. Each episode will feature a spine-tingling, creepy horror story that will keep you awake. Enjoy the story. My wife Lynn and I have been together for six years and married for 11 months. Our entire history together has been very normal and never once have I ever noticed any weird behaviors or red flags. I can't stress enough how out of character this whole thing is for her. Lynn is very kind, intelligent, and thoughtful. She's always been the no-nonsense type of person. Being childish or trying to scare me is not something she'd normally do. She doesn't even like watching horror movies. When we first started dating, she agreed to watch The Shining with me because she knew how much I loved horror. She was so scared that she didn't even make it through half of the movie before we had to turn it off. She isn't into anything creepy and has never been into pranks. It's just not her cup of tea, and that's fine, but that's what's so strange about this. It's just so unlike her. Uh, I should add that she has never had any mental health issues, and as far as I'm aware, it doesn't run in her family. I know some people are able to hide their mental health issues, but in the six years we've been together, I think I'd have seen some sort of sign. Uh, two months ago, I was in the kitchen making myself some coffee before work. I was running a bit late that morning, and I knew I wouldn't be able to make it to Dunkin' Donuts for my usual morning fix. I took a sip of coffee as I hurried down the hall towards the front door, when I happened to notice Lynn peeking at me from around the corner ahead of me. I could only see her eyes and a strand of her long, dark hair hanging against the wall. The rest of her body was concealed behind the corner. I nearly spilled my coffee when I saw her. I did burn the shit out of my lips. Jeez, Lynn, I said, wiping a few drops of coffee off my pants. You scared the shit out of me. She immediately popped out of view like a little kid that had been caught. I heard her scurry off towards the living room, and by the time I got to the front door, she was out of sight. It was really weird and just totally out of character for her, like I said, but I also found it kind of funny that she was being more playful and a little less serious. I shouted that I loved her and called her a weirdo. As I shut the door behind me, I heard her laughing. Her behavior was a bit odd, but it certainly wasn't something to call a priest over. I forgot about it by lunch, and by the time I got home, she was her normal self. I didn't bring it up, and neither did she, and life went on. The next incident happened three days later. It was around 2am, and I had woken up to get a drink, jug of OJ in hand, when I felt a strong feeling that I was being watched. For whatever reason, I looked down at the floor saw my wife's smiling face staring back at me. She was peeking at me from the other side of the island, staring up at me with wide, unblinking eyes and grinning, grinning like the Cheshire cat. I screamed, I'll admit it, not out of irritation, but fear. For some reason, at that moment, I was scared. At the sound of my scream, Lynn scuttled backwards out of my view her hands and feet smacking the tile as she hurried out of the kitchen on all fours. I didn't run after her, or even yell after her. I just stood there, frozen in shock, wondering what the hell had possessed her to do that. It took a little longer than I'd like to admit to go back upstairs, but I eventually did. When I got to our bedroom, 
Lynn was lying on her side, asleep, or at least pretending to be. I stood there for a while, watching her breathing to be sure she was really asleep. I had a feeling she might jump out at me the moment I got into bed, but she didn't. I climbed into bed and she didn't move. Her breathing was soft and deep, and I was starting to wonder if I'd dreamt the whole thing. The next morning, I waited for her to come down for coffee, and after handing her a mug and kissing her cheek, I decided to ask her about it. What was that about last night? I asked, keeping my tone light so I didn't offend or embarrass her. She frowned over her cup of coffee, shaking her head like she had no clue what I was referring to. You were peeking at me again, from over there? I said, pointing to the spot on the floor by the kitchen island. She followed my gaze, and when she looked back at me, she burst out laughing. She laughed so hard that I couldn't help but join her. You creep me the hell out sometimes, you know that? I said. She giggled and set her cup on the counter and wrapped her arms around my neck. You creep me out all the time, so I guess we're even. She teased. We said our goodbyes and left for work. As I drove, I kept thinking about how creepy it had been seeing her grinning at me from behind the island like that. The sounds her hands made on the floor as she crawled away. I told myself she was just trying to be silly, just trying to join me in my love of all things horror. It's not like I was afraid of her, but it still didn't sit right with me. I started seeing her peeking at me more and more. Sometimes she'd be peeking out from behind the couch or living room curtains. Once she even managed to get inside her grandmother's old trunk that sits at the foot of our bed. I might not have known she was even in there at all had the trunk's old hinges not given her away. She had the lid propped up just enough so that only half of her face peeked through. She'd been grinning like an excited toddler. It was unnerving. I didn't even know what to say to her. All I could do was stare. When I finally found my voice, I asked her why on earth she was doing this. She didn't answer, but she had slowly closed the lid, shutting herself inside the trunk. I just walked away, feeling disturbed. I didn't understand why she was doing it, but it clearly made her happy. I just hoped she would tire of the game quickly. Lynn didn't peek at me for the next two weeks. I started to think she was done with her weird prank and I was relieved. We were watching a show on Netflix one night and I jokingly said that I hadn't seen her peeking at me lately and that she must have given up on her spy game. She looked at me with a small smile and said, Maybe I've just gotten better at it. I didn't say anything, but I wondered whether or not she was joking. For the next few days, I couldn't stop thinking about what she'd said. Was she still peeking at me when I wasn't looking and just hadn't noticed? And if so, what the hell was she getting out of this? I started to feel paranoid, constantly checking whether she was watching from around the corner or behind a door. I was jumpy whenever I was home and she wasn't in full view of me. I felt stupid and a little crazy. But after a few weeks without another incident, I began to relax. I stopped checking behind furniture and walls and told myself it was just a bad memory. Then, a few days ago, things got so much worse. Lynn left to go to a friend's house, and I lounged on the couch and played a couple of games on my laptop. Around 9pm, I hopped in the shower, and as I was washing the soap from my hair, I felt that awful feeling that I was being watched. I slowly opened my eyes and almost had a heart attack. Lynn was peeking from behind the shower curtain. 
her entire head stretched into the shower, leaving just her body outside. Her long, dark hair hung against the curtain, the ends dripping with water. Her mouth hung open in a terrible grin, eyes wide and red, as if she hadn't blinked in a while. I screamed and jumped back against the wall. She didn't move, nor did her smile waver. Her makeup ran down her cheeks in two black streaks. She looked giddy and completely deranged. I was terrified. We stood like that for a few moments, neither of us saying a word. Finally, after what felt like forever, she slowly pulled her head back out of the shower, and I watched her blurry figure through the curtains as she moved backwards towards the bathroom door. A second later, the bathroom door slammed shut, hard enough to rattle the mirror. I screamed again and jumped out of the shower to lock the door. I stayed inside the bathroom for over an hour. Maybe I overreacted to some of you, but joke or not, I wasn't going to put up with the crazy shit anymore. That's what I kept telling myself as I paced my bathroom, stopping to listen at the door every few minutes. Suddenly, I heard a muffled sound and I pressed my ear against the bathroom door, straining to listen. I couldn't hear anything, but I envisioned Lynn standing on the other side of the door, giggling at her joke. I felt a surge of anger. I was beyond pissed at being made to feel scared in my own house and made to hide in the bathroom for an hour. All for what? Some joke? If it was a joke, it was an awful one. What the hell, Lynn? I snapped. This shit is getting really annoying. I waited for her to apologize or to call me a jerk, but instead, I heard a faint moan, so quiet I wondered if I heard it at all, and then complete silence. Lynn? I called out, not able to even hide the shakiness in my voice. I got no response, just my own heavy breathing. I swear to God, just fucking stop it! I yelled, pounding my fist on the door. I waited for her to cuss me out, something I would expect from me talking to her like that. I never screamed at her before, but there was nothing, just the occasional drip from the shower head. I won't deny that I was scared, too afraid to open the damn door and face my own wife. I waited another 30 minutes or so, which feels like a damn lifetime when you're scared. I finally decided I wasn't going to spend the night hiding in my bathroom. So, I got down on my knees and peered under the door. I almost expected to see her face peeking back at me, but thankfully didn't. I could see straight down the hallway to the top of the stairs, but no Lynn. I didn't know if I should be happy about that or not. I looked for a few minutes, waiting to see her head pop up over the top step, but it never came. I stood up, my hand hovering over the door and mentally prepared myself to open it. I slowly turned the lock with shaking fingers and was about to yank it open when I heard a sound that still makes me feel nauseous when I think about it. A moan, louder than before, but this time I was able to tell where it was coming from. I turned my head to the closet door as if in slow motion and locked eyes with my wife who was peeking out at me from the slight gap. Her eyes were still wide as ever, and her mouth was hanging open in the most grotesque, gaping smile I'd ever seen. I didn't even scream. I was too scared for even that. Her hands were clasped to her chest, body trembling with sheer delight as if she could barely contain her excitement. A short, raspy moan bubbled up from her throat, deep and raw, sending a shiver through my entire body. 
Somehow, I found the ability to pull the bathroom door open and ran as fast as I could all the way down the steps, snagging my keys and phone from the table in the living room before running outside to my car. I could hear her shrill laughter behind me, but I didn't hear her getting closer. I didn't bother shutting the front door. I drove away from the house faster than I legally should have, shivering the entire time, either from the fear or the cold, maybe a little of both. I hadn't grabbed a coat or even a pair of shoes. I was still in my boxers and my hair was damp. I drove straight to my brother Chris's house, about 40 minutes away, ignoring any and every call and text I got. I didn't check my phone until I was safely parked in my brother's driveway. Lynn had called four times and sent a flurry of texts, all wondering where I'd gone and why I left like that. I threw my phone at the dash in a rage, furious at her nonchalant attitude. My brother and his wife were surprised to see me, especially dressed in just a pair of boxers, but told me to stay as long as I needed. Chris lent me some clothes and asked what happened. I told him Lynn and I had a fight, but didn't get into the details. I didn't want him to think I was overreacting, leaving my wife over a prank, even if it was a strange one. I mean, hadn't I encouraged her for years to lighten up instead of being so serious all the time? I had wanted her to relax and loosen up, but this was definitely not what I'd had in mind. I tried to sleep on their sofa, but my brain wouldn't let me sleep. Every time I closed my eyes, I saw Lynn's face staring at me from inside the closet. Knowing she'd been in there with me the entire time made my skin crawl. She'd never left the damn bathroom at all. Instead, she'd slipped inside the closet and slammed the bathroom door shut to fool me. I woke up just as the sun was starting to rise. My sore body ached from the sofa and I felt drained. I knew I'd have to call Lynn at some point, but I didn't know what to say to her. I wouldn't be going home unless she gave me her word she'd never do any more creepy shit. I just wanted my wife back. Her normal, serious self never looked so good to me. I was contemplating calling her and telling her that when that familiar feeling came over me. I was being watched. I was staring at the ceiling, my heart in my throat. I didn't want to look away, but the longer I ignored the feeling, the worse it got. My eyes drifted away from the ceiling almost on their own. Her face was pressed up against the window beside the couch, staring down at me with that same gaping smile. Drool dribbled down her lips, leaving two long streaks down the glass. I didn't know how long she'd been there, but something told me she'd been there quite a while, possibly all night. I didn't bother screaming, though I was afraid. Anger trumped any fear I felt at that moment. I jumped up from the couch. Lynn, are you crazy? What the hell is wrong with you? Just go home! I shouted. Now! She didn't move, and her ghastly expression never changed. If anything, her smile only grew, as if she had never been more elated. I could hear Chris and his wife moving around upstairs, as if Lynn could hear them from her place outside. Her head twitched slightly in their direction, and she began to close her mouth slowly. Chris called my name from upstairs, obviously concerned. I turned to see him and his wife Rebecca hurrying down the steps. When I turned back to the window, Lynn was gone. The only sign she'd been there at all was the two streaks of drool still dripping down the glass. I tried explaining to Chris and Rebecca about waking up to see Lynn watching me through their window. They were skeptical. Who wouldn't be? 
Chris and I went outside to the spot in front of the window, but there were no footprints in the dirt, just a slight indent. Animal, probably, Chris guessed, and I didn't argue. He and Rebecca assumed I'd dreamt the entire episode, but they didn't understand, and I was too tired to explain it to them. I called out of work for that day and turned off my cell phone. I didn't want to face Lynn. Just talking to her was too much for me at that point. I really started to believe something was irreversibly wrong with her. No matter what promises she made, we'd never be the same again. The thought saddened me to my core. I cried most of the morning. By noon, I figured I was ready to confront her, give her one last chance to explain herself. I could at least give her that after six years, I told myself. I turned my phone on and saw the dozens of texts she'd sent, all from a seemingly concerned wife. Can we talk? I love you. Please call me. I'm really worried. Can you answer? Just come home. And more of the same. All texts telling me she loved me and she wanted me home. How worried she was. Not a damn one addressing the crazy shit she pulled. Like she hadn't been acting like a character from a Stephen King book. Even her texts were different. She normally texted novels just to tell me to pick up a loaf of bread. You'd think she'd have more to say after her bizarre shenanigans. I know it probably seems childish to some of you who are miles away from this situation, but if you saw the way Lynn had looked at me, how she scampered on all fours like some wild animal, grinning at me from inside the closet like a lunatic, then you'd find my reaction was warranted. I ended up staying with Chris and Rebecca for another night. I didn't wake up yesterday until afternoon, and thankfully, I didn't see Lynn's face watching me through the window. I don't want to pry, because it's not my place, but is this fight something that can be mended? She made us both a sandwich for lunch, and I knew she wanted to breach the subject without seeming to be nosy. I don't know, I just... she's like a different person. I said, choosing my words carefully. I still wasn't ready for her or Chris to know the full extent of the batshit craziness I'd been dealing with. People change, Ben, but she's still the same woman you married. Maybe you both just need to talk through your issues. Whatever's going on, I'm sure it can be fixed. She said, ever the peacemaker. I think it's beyond that now. I don't think talking would help. I just don't trust her. The words stung in my heart. I missed and loved my wife, but how could I live with someone like that? Living in constant fear didn't sound too appealing. Lynn loves you. She has to be absolutely crushed. I don't know about that. Well, she certainly seemed like it to me. I've never seen her so upset. Very much unlike the Lynn I know. Rebecca said, shaking her head sadly. It took a full minute for her words to really sink in, and when they did, I felt dread worming its way through my skin. Wait, wait, what do you mean? Y you saw her? Y you saw Lynn? I asked, my mouth suddenly dry. Rebecca nodded casually, as if that fact wasn't nightmare fuel. Maybe for her it wasn't. She stopped by this morning just after Chris left for work. She said, cleaning the plates from the table. I didn't see her car, though. Maybe she took an Uber or something. Beck, what did she say? Did, did she come inside? I asked, sweat starting to break out on my forehead. I began looking around, examining corners as though a predator lurked behind them. 
No. She just asked if you were awake yet, and I said that you weren't. I asked if she wanted me to wake you, but she said no. Just said to let you sleep. She said as she washed the dishes. That's all. She didn't say anything else. No. She looked awful, though. Like she hadn't slept in days. I think you should call her. I got up from the table and thanked Rebecca for lunch. I felt a little bit better at the knowledge that at least she hadn't come inside. Still, I needed to double check that the doors were locked. I sat for a while, trying to figure out what to do next. I didn't want to go home, but I felt that I owed it to Lynn to help her if I could. Hadn't I sworn an oath to love and honor her through sickness and health? Clearly, she was very sick. If she was sick, which I truly believe she was, I had to try to get her the help she needed. I didn't even know where to start. I didn't want to call the police, and besides, what the hell was I going to tell them? That my wife was peeking at me? That she was being creepy? As bizarre as she'd been, she still hadn't committed any crime. Not yet, anyway. The police would have probably said I was overreacting, but this wasn't some prank. It felt wrong, dangerous even, like something sinister lurked beneath her smile. I knew as her husband I was well within my rights to have her committed, but what if she simply acted normal in their presence? She'd obviously been able to fool Rebecca into thinking she was just a concerned wife. As long as the doctors didn't find her a danger to herself or others, they'd have no choice but to release her after 72 hours. I felt lost and overwhelmed, so I did what any husband in my position would do. I called her mother. I didn't want to, believe me. Her mother, Marianne, and I were never on the best of terms. We'd never fought or anything like that. She just wasn't a warm person and wasn't really easy to get along with. She hardly ever smiled, and when she did, only her lips would move into a thin-lipped smile, leaving her eyes as blank as ever. She gave off this aura that felt like she was permanently on the offensive. I had only met her twice, and both times were for such short visits. I got the impression she didn't approve of me for her daughter. Lynn always ushered us out quickly, as she didn't want me to feel uncomfortable, which I was grateful for. Being in her mother's company felt almost unbearable, like walking on glass. I was glad when we moved three states away so we didn't have to see her often. I was happy to avoid the woman, but I needed her help. I really didn't want to talk to her at all, but I had to talk to someone, and someone who knew Lynn better than I did. So I gripped my teeth and did what I had to. Yes. She answered, already sounding irritated. Marianne, it's me, Ben. Do you have a minute to talk? I could hear her cluck her tongue in irritation. I'm in the middle of writing some checks, but if you insist, I suppose I can spare a moment. What is it that you want to discuss, Benjamin? Uh, it's about Lynn. She's been acting strangely, and I was wondering if you had any idea whether there was something... It's a bit difficult to follow your rambling, Benjamin. What is it you want from me? I could almost see her standing there in her thin sweater and slacks, tapping her fingernails impatiently on the table. Uh, I wanted to know if you'd ever noticed any odd behavior or possibly any mental health issues. There was a long, uncomfortable pause that I couldn't tell whether it was because she was just thinking or something else. Finally, after a few seconds, she spoke. 
I'm not sure if this is one of your jokes, Benjamin, but if so, I don't find the humor in it. Now, I do have business to attend to, as I've said, so if you don't mind... She said, but I cut her off before she could get rid of me. Maryam, it's not a joke. I'm sincerely concerned about Lynn's mental health. Her behavior has been very erratic lately. I'm very worried about her, and I figured as her mother, you would be as well, I said, my frustration evident in my voice. If you're truly concerned, then I suggest you get the health professionals involved. I don't know what you expect of me. She snapped. I could tell she was seconds away from hanging up, and for some reason, I was desperate not to let her. I had the feeling that she knew a lot more than she was letting on. Please, if not for me, do it for Lynn. I tried. I heard a faint, shaky intake of breath, as if she was trying to hold her steely persona together, but failing. Marianne? What's wrong? Benjamin, I don't know what to tell you. My only advice would be to seek professional help. Do not call here again. Goodbye. I tried to call out to her, but she'd hung up. I tried to wrap my head around the call and her refusal to help me. Even if she didn't like me, why wouldn't she want to help her own daughter? I couldn't understand that. I tried to replay the conversation, desperate to find something I missed. After a while, I almost gave up until I remembered her last few words to me. Seek professional help. She'd said those words in a bit of urgency. I could have just been grasping at straws, but no. I was sure her voice had changed ever so slightly when she'd said that, as if they were very important. What had she meant? I assumed she'd been referring to medical professionals, but maybe she was referring to someone else. Someone that she didn't, for some reason, feel comfortable saying directly. Or maybe I was just desperate. I waited for Chris to get home, and after a very long and exhausting conversation with him and Rebecca, I convinced them that Lynn truly needed psychiatric help. I didn't tell them everything, I wasn't prepared to go into it yet, but I told them about our last encounter, how she'd hidden in the bathroom, peeking at me from the closet. They were obviously shocked, but thankfully they believed me. They too just wanted to help her. Still, they didn't think it was all that serious. Weird, maybe, but not dangerous. They just kept saying that Lynn had to be playing some kind of a weird joke. Maybe for YouTube? Rebecca offered, if only half-heartedly. Chris didn't think we should involve the police yet. He offered instead to go with me, and I readily accepted. He reasoned that calmly talking to her, trying to coax her into going willingly, was the best recourse. I agreed to do it his way. At least I wouldn't be going into that house alone. We drove over this morning, just after breakfast. There was no way I was going at night. When we pulled into the driveway, my stomach began doing somersaults. Her car wasn't there, but I still didn't let my guard down. The front door was ajar, and for a split second, I thought we'd seen her eyes staring through the gap. I was shaking and starting to sweat. Chris, however, was fine. He waited for me to open the door, his hands in his pockets like he was going on a damn stroll through the park. I envied his ignorance. I pushed the door open and was immediately hit with the stench of rot. Chris smelled it too, and he walked in the house behind me with his nose scrunched up. What do you guys use to clean the floors around here? Shit? Chris mumbled. Shut up, I said, 
my eyes darting around for any signs of Lynn. The house was deadly quiet and dark, despite being ten in the morning. All the curtains were closed tight, refusing to allow any sunlight inside. If I hadn't left it just two days prior, I'd have thought the house to be abandoned. We moved through each room, carefully checking any place that she might hide, occasionally calling her name. Why the fuck are you looking under the couch? Chris asked eventually. Are we looking for your wife? He looked at me like I was a moron. Let's go upstairs. He shook his head, but followed me up the stairs to check the bathroom and spare bedroom. On the way up, my shoes crunched over pieces of glass that looked to be littered over a few of the steps. I noticed that one of Lynn and my wedding portraits that hung on the wall along the staircase had been smashed. The frame hung crookedly, all the glass removed. I stared at the picture, a lump forming in my throat. We had taken the photo just after leaving the church, after saying our vows. She looked so beautiful in her white gown. I looked at Lynn's beautiful face. I never dreamed her face would ever be a source of terror for me. We climbed the rest of the steps and checked the spare bedroom, but it looked completely untouched. I was hesitant to go into the bathroom, my fear that night coming back to me all at once. Chris noticed and offered to go in by himself but I couldn't let him do that. So we walked in together, checking the closet and the shower. The bathroom looked as if it hadn't been touched since the night I left. I don't think she's here, Ben. Why don't you pack some clothes and we'll try coming back tomorrow or something. I nodded and went into our bedroom and shoved some clothes into a duffel bag. When I checked inside our closet, I came across the source of the smell and gagged. Chris took one look and lost all color in his face. He had to go stand by the stairs to get away from the sight and smell. I gazed down in shock at what lay in my bedroom closet. Soaking into the rug were at least a dozen eyeballs, all carefully laid out in pairs. Some were as large as a quarter, while others were as tiny as a marble. I stared down at the eyes she'd collected from small animals, and I wondered how she'd gotten them, and shuddered at the thought. Man, I thought I had it bad with Becca's shoe addiction, but damn, your wife's in here collecting eyeballs. Chris said, gagging. Ben, I think we should go. He called from the hall. I'm getting nauseous. Uh, All right. I grabbed my duffel and shut the closet door on my new nightmare. I stepped out into the hall and took a deep breath of air. I could taste the rot on my tongue and I couldn't help but gag. Who the fuck lines up eyeballs in their closet like that? Chris mumbled. I tried to tell you she needed help, I said. She doesn't need help, Ben. She needs a fucking exorcist, he said. Are you coming or what? I can't stand the smell and he- His words died in his throat, and his eyes grew wide with fear. I didn't ask him why. I could feel it. Someone was watching me, and I didn't think it was the eyes in the closet. I turned around, my eyes slowly scanning the bedroom. I whispered as I finally saw what we'd missed. Under the bed, curled on her side, watching us with the excitement of a kid on Christmas morning, was my wife. She held her hands together just under her chin, and they were shaking eagerly. Now that she'd been found, I could hear the quiet noises she was making, a sort of hiccuping sound in her throat, as if the excitement was just too much for her. It was unnerving to say the least. Wide eyes and that same huge smile. 
Everything in me told me to run, but I forced it away. This was my wife. No matter how twisted, she was still the woman I married. I had to help her. Then, I said softly. She didn't respond, but her head bobbed back and forth in two quick little movements as if she were nodding. Baby, I just want to help, okay? Can you... Can, can you let me do that? I had taken a single step forward, approaching her like some kind of dangerous animal. I love you, Lynn, I said softly, taking another step closer. She let a tiny moan escape her wide open mouth and I had to resist the urge to run. Her shoulders were starting to quiver and her eyes grew as large as saucers. I crouched down so that I could see her better and immediately saw the blood. Her hands were covered in it. They trembled more the closer I got, as if she was barely able to contain herself. Lynn, are you hurt? You're bleeding. She bobbed her head again, her bloody fingers moving up and down as if playing an invisible piano. They occasionally grazed her chin, leaving smears of blood on her skin. I wanted to recoil in disgust. The smell that was coming off of her was revolting. I could feel the vomit trying to climb up my throat. Her lips were dry and stretched thin, blood seeping between the cracks. I knew she wouldn't come out on her own, but I didn't want to leave her in the state she was in. I scooted closer and reached out to her. The excited hiccuping sounds got louder and her hands shook, fingers flexing. It was then I could see the blood oozing from in between her fingers. Oh my god, Lynn, you're bleeding! Instinctively, I reached out to take her hand, but before I could even touch her, her hand sprang out towards me. A sharp pain shot through my arm and I fell back on my ass. My arm burned and I could see the blood dripping down onto the carpet. I looked back at her in shock and saw her grinning madly, her fingers clutching a large shard of glass. You alright in there? Chris asked from behind me. I turned my head slightly and nodded to him, cradling my arm to my chest. When I turned back to face Lynn, I saw her focus had shifted. She wasn't looking at me anymore and she wasn't smiling anymore either. She was staring past me, her eyes glaring at Chris the way a hungry lion might stare at an antelope. Her mouth was still hanging open, but it was twisted into a snarl. I got to my feet and began walking backwards down the hall, afraid to take my eyes off her. Are you bleeding? Chris asked. The moment the words left his mouth, Lynn started scooting out from under the bed, the glass shards still in her fist. Chris, run! Go! I yelled. He must have been too afraid to move because a second later, I felt my back bump into him. He was still standing at the top of the stairs, staring at the horror that was my wife. Lynn had crawled completely out from under the bed and stood in the bedroom doorway, her face twisted in rage. Her whole body was visibly tense. Blood ran down her fingers and onto the floor. Jesus, Lynn, you, uh, playing hide and seek? I reached back and pushed him towards the steps. Move your ass, Chris, I said as quietly but firmly as I could. Lynn bobbed her head in fast, sharp motions and began to grin, stretching her mouth open wider and wider so that her chin seemed to touch her chest. I heard Chris mutter a prayer, and then he was running down the stairs. I stood at the top of the steps, stuck between the love for a woman who clearly needed serious help and self-preservation. I only want to help, I said, choking back tears. 
her eyes focused on me once again as she slowly lifted the glass, holding it out in front of her. And then she started sprinting towards me, grinning with utter excitement. Thankfully, my body took over and I flew down the stairs, skipping two or three at a time. I made it to the front door before I felt her leap onto my back, wrapping her arms around my neck, her mouth open next to my ears so that I could hear those terrible hiccuping sounds up close. I shook her off me, knocking her to the floor. I felt a searing pain in my back as she went, but I tore open the front door and bolted to my car. Chris was standing in the front yard, talking on the phone with the police. I didn't say a word. I just ran to my car and jumped in. Chris took the hint and followed me, still on the line with 911. I watched the rearview mirror, sure I'd see her there running after us, but I never did. I went straight to the ER and got 12 stitches in my arm and 3 in my back. The police asked a lot of questions and went back to the house to do a search, but of course, Lynn wasn't there. They advised me to stay with a friend or relative for a while and to file a restraining order as soon as I could, but none of those things would matter. Somehow, I just knew. I dropped Chris off at home and went to a motel an hour away. I wanted to put as much distance between me and Lynn as I could. This is where I've been for the last four hours. I thought maybe the police would find her. Maybe they'd get her the help she desperately needs. But now I don't think so. Because 40 minutes ago, I got a text from an unknown number. Just three words. I found you. And a picture attached. The picture was dark and grainy, but I instantly knew what it was. There was no mistaking my wife's eye. I started recording this immediately after. I don't know what to do. I'm alone and scared, and I can't help but feel that I'm being watched. the damp, grease-reeking machine shop before I opened my eyes. A stinging chemical tang coupled with the dry, rotten smell that permeates buildings no one intends on claiming. A man spits, the sound, not a wet glob of phlegm, but a small rattling noise, almost like a marble skipping across tile. If I were given a few minutes to guess what the place I was in looked like, I don't think I'd be far off. Massive machines, rusted beyond recognition, various piles of debris from fallen sections of ceiling, and flashes of tiny, reflective red eyes deep in the shadows. The man stands about five foot ten, wearing a pair of suit pants and a sharp gray dress shirt. At odds with the rest of his attire is an old, frayed jean jacket, stained and scorched to the point where I couldn't even guess the original color which is something I'm normally pretty good at. I'd tell you all about me, but there isn't that much. I've got a couple of YouTube channels, makeup tutorials mostly. But lately, my stuff on Wiccan culture has been taking off. I mean, I don't take any of it too seriously, but it brings in the views. 
And that keeps me from having to flip burgers or work at a call center or something. What it didn't keep me from is waking up duct taped to a chair by some psychopath. I'm not the only one, though. The woman next to me is striking despite the situation we find ourselves in. Tall, tanned, with long black hair that somehow managed to maintain some shape despite our less-than-gentle trip. The woman next to her, though, well, she's seen better days, at the very least statistically. She has to be 90 years old, minimum. Wisps of gray hair attempt to escape the confines of a faded but well-kept headscarf. I couldn't tell you the country, but she has a heavy, old European woman vibe. Gray, outdated clothing, shawl upon shawl, The woman stares ahead, face stoic, tracking the man pacing with his back turned to us. The man spits again, another sound of something small and hard skipping across the old industrial cement. So ladies, I bet you were all wondering why you were here. Well, I'm a little short on time, so I'll give you the gist of it, and we'll figure out the rest along the way. You see, once upon a time, I ran afoul of some miserable old woman. Won't say that none of it was my fault, but I will say plenty of it was hers. Well, this miserable old ditch pig, she gave me something. The man pauses, spits, with that same rattling noise, and begins to turn towards us. I thought it was a gift, but none of us would be here unless it was a curse, now would we? Two of you women are unlucky. Wrong place, wrong time. One of you, though. You were cut from the same cloth as that old bag from three decades ago. And I need you to take the sack of shit one of your sisters gave me to hold. I don't care what you do with it after that, but my time with this burden is over. Tonight. The man faces us. Short black hair, a scruffy beard. He has to be nearly 40. And the look in his eyes is spaced out and frantic all at the same time. He spits on the ground in front of us. Something pointed and white, covered in blood, skids to an erratic stop. A tooth. The man dabs a spot of blood from the corner of his mouth before continuing. I don't know which one of you I'm looking for, but I intend to find out. And let's just say... I intend to leave no rock unturned. Harsh white light illuminates a massive steel chest. Tiered drawers open, exposing a variety of tools. Knives and weapons I recognize, along with dozens of strange objects I don't even want to guess the function of. My heart starts fluttering, the reality of the situation dawning on me. I struggle against the duct tape bonding me to the chair, but it doesn't budge. I only succeed in causing it to stretch and tighten. The real witch. She'd be doing everyone a big favor by just telling me now. I'm no psycho, ladies. Once I've lightened my load here, all three of you are free to go. But until one of you little birdies start chirping, I'm going to cut, I'm going to burn, I'm going to crush, I'm going to go through every toy in my toy box figuring out what I need to know. The man is inches away from my face, a grin spreading up one side of his face before he spits a blood-covered tooth into my lap. You're insane! 
My remark causes an instant rage in the man. Before I can react, he's holding a long black blade knife against my right cheek. No, he's just an asshole. Crazy happens, you gotta be born an asshole. The old woman says. Her voice, a three-pack-a-day smoker's growl. At first, I was proud of the old woman. Her defiance and almost palpable feeling in the cold warehouse. But then I felt sorry for her and responsible for the horrors the man in the jean jacket started to inflict upon her. I thought the first punch would have killed her. I'm no expert, but it didn't look like the man was holding anything back. It didn't, but it turned her face into a mangled funhouse horror, clotted blood and broken bone obscuring any semblance of facial features. I can't say she stayed silent as the man brought out a thin set of scalpels began to cut strange designs into her. She howled through shattered teeth, but she stayed defiant, schooling all of us in a century's worth of insults covering topics ranging from the man's family to his Johnson. By the time the man stopped flaying and tearing at the woman, she was alive, but just barely, biology shutting down even her verbal resistance. The man looks disappointed, like a poker player losing a sure bet. I don't know how long it's been. Minutes, maybe an hour. But the floor is now littered with a few dozen of the man's teeth. Spat out like clockwork, every few seconds. I was really thinking it was the old lady. If it walks like a duck, and all that. But I guess you can't judge a book by its cover. He holds a small bottle, a clear fluid within sloshes about menacingly. Which witch? He repeats, witch, pointing the bottle witch, from myself to the woman sitting beside witch, me. In an instant, the room turns cold enough to fog our breath. Shadows seem to deepen and extend. The dimensions of the room warp and twist. The man laughs, slapping one leg as he surveys the hellscape the warehouse is slowly turning into. There it is. One of you is getting a little scared. Or a little angry, maybe. Good news. That means we are getting somewhere. All of us are that much closer to going home. His tone is manic now, a harsh wind starting to blow through the warehouse, flapping his stiff, crusty jacket wildly. He grabs the thin wrist of the tall, dark-skinned woman. She struggles, but despite the man's thin frame, he holds the hand perfectly still. The woman says nothing. There's fear in her eyes, but none makes it any further. She knows nothing good is coming but she isn't going to give him the satisfaction. I like that. Your fuck you get it over with attitude. The man says lecherously. The woman sounds casual. Her voice silk, her tone steel. What's in the bottle? The man grins, uncorking it with one hand and deftly spinning it without spilling a drop. The mouth of the bottle resting on the woman's palm. Holy water, business suit Morticia. He says with a grin. The relief in the woman's eyes is clear. This look turns to confusion as she starts to attempt to flex her fingers, one of which doesn't seem to be functioning. Voices in the darkness, the smell of old swamp and cold dirt, all accompanied by the mirth-ridden <laughs> cackle of a madman. Just screwing with you, lady. All of that hocus-pocus crap doesn't really do shit. This is just anhydrous acid. Two steps stronger than you can get without a permit. Nasty shit 
sucks the moisture out of nerves as it dissolves. You could melt your entire body in this shit and never notice. Technically. He twists her wrist, putting the tall woman's hand directly in front of her eyes. Rivulets of liquid flesh start to pour from the bottom, two fingers hanging at limp and awkward angles. Now she screams. She watches her doll-like hand begin to dissolve itself from the inside out. She breaks down. Not that I can judge. At some point, I've started crying. And as I see the look of pure, painless trauma in my compatriot's eyes, I find I can't stop. Don't worry about bleeding out there, expensive Elvira. Once that stuff burns itself out, everything should be pretty well cauterized. And you, you too, Broomhilda, you get off easy this round. I'm thinking that'll make for some interesting conversation. You got a half hour, ladies. Chat amongst yourselves. Figure shit out. Do what you need to do to help me get what I need. Trust me, things are all downhill from here. The man finishes his statement as he opens a rusted door, all but hidden behind a machine rusted to a massive scrap mountain. My name's Celine, I dare to say. The man chuckles, shaking his head as he closes the door on protesting hinges. Does anyone know what the fuck is going on? The tall woman says. I don't even know your name, kinder. The old woman replies. I'm shocked she's lucid. Ambrose, now back to important things. Where are we and how do we stop being here? Anyone? Despite her hand being a half-melted lump, Ambrose seems to be keeping things together. Ingrid, not that you asked. The old woman says, her vaguely Germanic accent thickening slightly. And do I know witches? I've got some stories of a couple of wise women. There are a couple of things to a couple of Nazis. But so does every woman my age. Even if I know what I saw. And I'm 84. Who knows how much of my memory is real. How much is what made the most interesting story. But I do know of evil. I've seen it a handful of times in my life. I can guarantee you, this whole situation has less to do with the supernatural and more to do with how this greasy Meshuga never got a girl in high school. I have to agree. This guy is a 4chan comic come to life. I think he's just looking for some kind of excuse to kill a woman, I interject. Clearly, I think that too. I smelled him, alright? That being said, Maybe we should entertain the possibility that he can be a murderous incel, but also onto something. Ambrose lets the statement hang a moment before continuing. No. No one is backing me up here? Okay, how about this? I've seen things up close and with no chance of someone bullshitting me. Not witches, but I don't know, in the ballpark? Seems like Ingrid has as well. What about you, Celine? Ever run across anything you can't explain? I, I, I stammer. It's an important question. Not something, especially under the circumstances, I want to make a snap judgment on. Ambrose rolls her eyes. I'm not asking for photo evidence, girl. Jesus. 
I'm just going to assume the answer is a yes? I nod in agreement. Okay, so maybe he is crazy, but the situation isn't. Which means we need to figure out who of us he wants and why in the fuck she let me lose a hand instead of just uncursing this guy. My vote is for Ingrid. Call me basic all you want, but anyone who had the three of us sitting in front of them and didn't immediately know she was the witch would be an idiot. Says the woman not even wincing from losing a hand. Ingrid says, low, her voice full of spite. You hurt the guy. Kills the nerves. I'm sure I'll be screaming in pain when they have to amputate the rest of it. But at the moment, all I care about is making it out of here alive. So I can do that. Ambrose's tone is flippant, almost patronizing. What about me? I say, trying to diffuse some of the tension. The answer is never the middle, hun. I would think it was me before I thought it was you. Ambrose says. Ingrid nodding in agreement. I was about to make some argument against that line of logic when I noticed Ingrid staring toward the door the terror in the Texas tuxedo left through. I expected our host, or maybe a bunch of large, angry friends of his. The two little girls in gray sundresses, though, they took me off guard. I've never known anything about kids, so my guess of around eight to ten might be off significantly in either direction. Their hair was long, thin, and blonde. Their eyes, deep black pools. And as they simultaneously grinned, I could see small, pointed predator's teeth. Our host walks up behind them, looking almost proud. Did we have a good chat? Anyone feel like standing up and taking one for the team? The sounds in the warehouse, nothing more than rodents, and the ominously howling wind. As I take a look around, I notice... Inch by inch, the place is getting worse. With every passing minute, more of this charnel house is turning into something else. Dark shadows, an almost bog-like smell. Twisted, sprawling vegetation are creeping toward our group. Oh well, guess I didn't waste my money after all. I'd like to introduce you to Tina and Annette. The psychopath says, as the girls, for lack of a better term, wave. I notice a small T on the dress of one child, an A on the other as they approach. My sister and I are really good at finding certain kinds of people. Tina starts. And Mr. Keller has given us a lot of money to figure out something for him. Annette finishes. Closer, the girls appear less human. Dull, almost leather-like skin, a little too much muscle, and an unnatural halting, almost spider-like gait set the hairs on the back of my neck on end. Just shy of in unison, the girls looked down our little line of victims, judging, evaluating, doing whatever it is they do to try and find witches, I guess. Annette begins to walk over to me, dull, black eyes inspecting me as if I were a faulty engine. I think this one, she says to her sister, Tina looks unconvinced. Why? Her tone petulant. Not really a mark on her, yet the other two are already mutilated. 
Makes her seem like a good place to start, at least. Annette grins as she steps onto my lap. Slowly, she lowers her face to mine, those deep, black orbs seeming to fill my vision. Strange, fractal veins of white fade in, proving a stark contrast to the pitch of the rest of the child's eye. The glistening black and white orb begins to spin as I feel a sense of disassociation. My immediate surroundings become less tangible. I want you to take a moment and try to think of every bad thing you've done in your life. Take as long as you need. I don't care if you just took a week. I guarantee you didn't remember half of it. I know this because those spinning duochrome orbs took me on a chronological tour of every second of my life I wasn't proud of. The sense of being in two places at once, living two timelines at once, took as much of a physical toll as an emotional toll. My limbs spasmed, my breathing became erratic, all while my mind was processing years worth of jealousy, revenge, and malice in seconds. I'm not a bad person. It isn't that my life is so full of me going around being a bitch that it takes a phone book-sized file to record. But when you're looking at a flawless record of every little sin, it adds up. By the time I was remembering gluing my best friend's hair to her desk in grade seven, I felt on the verge of death, like I'd been running a marathon through a war zone. My body ached, my mind was hanging on by threads. I was losing track of which series of memories was current. I think that's enough. I hear a small voice say from far away. She's got a couple minutes left in her. I know it. Another similar voice says. In an instant, I'm back in the bog-infested warehouse. Tina and Annette standing in front of me, deciding which of the other two women in the room will be next. We'll let you have a rest before we try again. Love your YouTube channel, by the way. Tina says. The legitimacy of the compliment is too much. A stream of hot, thin vomit ejects from me, panic trying to do something about this evil funhouse I find myself in. I start to realize Keller's plan. With these two things, it's only a matter of time before they hit on something that will show them who's who. But as I look at my bruised wrists, and I feel the gouges in my tongue... I'm not sure any of us can survive long enough for them to get what they need. The old woman is next to take a walk down memory lane. Unlike myself, she seems almost relaxed. I can tell by the brief, involuntary movements she's being taken through the same hell I was. But she's dealing with it much better. Which isn't to say she's unscathed by the end of the ordeal. Thin lines of blood run from her wrists and she's covered in a thick layer of sweat. I feel like asking her what her secret was, but I doubt I'm going to be getting better answers than the monster-wielding psycho that has us trapped. As the twins make their way to Ambrose, she yells, Okay, enough. It's me, okay? You twisted prick. Just let the other two go, and I'll take your likely well-deserved curse. Keller smiles. I see anticipation and even fear in his eyes. Am I supposed to just take your word for it? The man laughs <laughs> and stares, deadly serious, waiting for a reply. When you could just have your little goblins there rip it from my head anyway? No, I've got proof. 
Besides, you know, the hell swamp I'm making this place in case you decide to just start killing innocent women? You've got my phone. Open the back. There's going to be a very old SD card. Not installed. Plug it in. Give it a watch. Then come back and tell me I'm not the woman you're looking for. Ambrose smiles, her confidence and mangled claw-like hand selling her story. To me, anyway. Why don't I ask you to just do something? I'll cut those hands free and let you do any little cantrip you want. Seems it would be a lot quicker. Keller looks like he's caught the woman. Ambrose, though, is unfazed. Maybe you know about some 200-year-old crones that can throw around magic like confetti. I'm 28. I use my talent here and there for a little bit of edge in life. It takes concentration, the right ingredients, and time. Unless you want to sit here for a couple days, go watch the video. The dismissive look she gives him is distilled charisma. And he does leave, taking the twins with him. As that rusted door closes, Ambrose looks to me, panicked. That card contained a video of me having a conversation with something that probably lives on the same fucked up street as those kids. That being said, I'm in no way a witch. I paid 20k to some spooky dude, and it worked out. I'm hoping it's enough to keep him intrigued for 45 minutes. But for all I know, I'm talking to a witch's mortal enemy. And he's gonna be out here in five. We need to get out. There's a snapping noise. Ambrose and I look to Ingrid, one hand free, slowly unraveling the tape and knots from the other. Why you go through two walls? You have a lot of bad things happening to you. I'm lucky that Schmuck is as inventive as he's handsome. One of you distract him. Whoever's making it, uh, boorish Kavlov pig in here, keep it up, and I'll go get help. See how the bastard feels about a shout-out of the cops. Ingrid is focused, broken but unbowed. I can easily picture her on a battlefield. When Keller leaves the room, the door slams open. His face is a twisting mess of rage and confusion. He holds a massive revolver, and as he stomps over, his eyes are locked on me. But the muzzle of the huge firearm is pointed squarely at my face. Do something, or we get to see how much of a hole this thing makes in your friend's head. Keller says, on the verge of screaming, I can't breathe, or else when Ambrose replied with simply... No, I would have gasped. He cocks the hammer. Not the time for games, princess. This shit is all on a schedule. Because the only thing worse than the hell I'm forced to live would be getting arrested and then experimented on for the rest of my life. I've got about another hour where I can wrap all of this up nicely and disappear. You've got about a minute before I call your bluff. It'll take me another 40 years, but I'll get up the money to try this again. And no matter what tonight, at least I'll make the world better by removing a witch. Ingrid is gone. Keller is none the wiser. Me just chilling with that thing wasn't enough? I can hear the cracks in Ambrose's bluff, but she holds the man's stare. 
A witch could do that. So could a dozen other supernatural MacGuffins, or hell, any person with a lot of cash and the right connections. The silence that follows Keller's comment hangs like a guillotine. Shoot her then. It's not going to change the fact that I'm not a magic vending machine. I feel betrayed as Ambrose says this, but I can't really blame her. We need time. My heart sinks as his eyes travel from Ambrose's to mine. His breath is starting to come in shaking gasps, that wild-eyed mania leaving his eyes replaced with panic and shame. I see his finger tightening on the trigger, knowing that once it crosses a certain point, everything is over for me. I feel no peace, not even anger, just disappointment. Keller throws the pistol into the unrelenting gloom almost all of the warehouse has become. He falls to the floor, crying, sitting there, and I see his eyes. Pink-colored tears come from what look like two eyes trying to occupy one socket. Twin lines of tears falling from each bulging orb. I can't do it. I thought I could, but I couldn't. Keller begins. Holy shit. What have I done? I've tortured people. I, I was going to kill a woman. He looks to us now, seeing us, not just as a witch and two pieces of leverage, but as people. He stammers apologies, knowing none will suffice. You know where all this started? A miserable old woman. She set her miserable old dog on a friend of mine when I was about 10. It was 1940, and like every kid my age, I had a pellet gun with me wherever I went. I wanted to shoot the thing in the ass, give it a lesson for giving my friend six stitches. I've never been a good shot, though. Hit it in the eye, got infected, and that dog died slow. Vets in the 40s, they were basically butchers. Like an idiot, I confessed my crime, expecting a beating from the old woman and one from my dad when I got home. But something about her had changed. She was understanding, nice, nothing like the mean old hag I'd known her as since as far back as I could remember. She became like a second grandmother to me and even eventually let me in on her secret. Of course, she was a witch. Well, I wanted to go down that path as well. But it's a girls' club, in the strictest sense of the term. But one day, when I was 21, she asked me if you could have anything, any gift from the void, what would it be? Her tone was sad, not like she was offering a gift at all. I told her I wanted to live forever. She told me she could make it happen. Slowly over the course of three days, Every bit of my body was made anew. Some parts faster than others, but twice a week, there's 150 pounds of body parts I have to throw out. If I don't take the time to do things like this... Keller reaches into his face, tearing an extra eye from its socket. He screams and grasps at his face before continuing, unhinged but his rage now facing inward. I turn into a non-functional lump of horror. The kicker is, the old lady, she didn't have some long plan to torture me. She legitimately had a change of heart. 
but that only came after she'd put the whammy on me the first time she saw what happened to the dog. Witches can't do things in half measures. Once they drag up their mojo to get something done, things just keep getting worse till it gets done. Keller composes himself somewhat and grabs a long hunting knife from his boot. He slowly uses it to cut one of my hands free, then gives me the knife. You two are free to go. And if you feel the need to put that knife into me a couple times, I won't stop you. It won't kill me, but it might make you feel better. I'm already through the bindings on my other hand and working on my legs as Keller backs away. I have Ambrose free, who seems ready to take the man up on his offer. As a crackling voice, seeming to come from random angles of a mire we are now in, booms out. It's clearly Ingrid, but with a dark power behind it. Well, why couldn't you have figured it all out a couple hours ago? It saved us all some trouble. Your story is sad, but the world is filled with sad stories. I smelled it in the second I saw you. Whoever put a curse on you, she knew what she was doing. I probably can't kill you, kinda, but I'm going to slowly tear you into a jaw-sized pieces. And what you go insane, trying to do with being in a couple hundred places at once. And sorry, girls, this putz, he wasn't smart enough to figure out who was the witch. He's right about one thing. Once we get the ball rolling, there's no stopping it. This place is going to be hell. And I've had my way with this little boy. Feel free to try to get out. I wouldn't get my hopes up, dearie. Where we are standing no longer resembles anything close to a machine shop. Off in the distance, I can see cement walls, doors, and windows. But everything in between is a freezing, slime-encrusted bog. Thin, feral cats with glowing purple eyes stalk the short, twisted trees. Eyes pop up from stagnant puddles gleaming with an all-too-human intellect. Try and find a door, Keller says, producing an old claw hammer from his coat. I'll try and make things quick either way. Before jogging into the fetid tear and reality we find ourselves in. I can't say I feel a respect for the guy. But I do feel a bond, as sick and sad as that is. Whatever the situation was ten minutes ago, things have changed in the most fundamental of ways. If I wanted to describe the journey through the bog step by step, we could sit here for weeks discussing every just south of reality sight I saw or sound I might have heard. But that would lose the forest for the trees, so to speak. The place looked witch. It smelled witch. It sounded witch. No subtle 18th century Wiccan legends, nothing confirming the quotes of some heroic woman from 200 years ago burned as something she was not for being something she was. Just blunt, dollar store, rubber mask, flapping bats, and shadowy trees. Witch. Maybe you just laughed. But the thing and every cliche we associate with Halloween comes from some small fear rooted in reality. The tree isn't scary. What hides in its shadow is the danger. 
The feral cats can't hurt you. But the things in the water they are fleeing from bear long teeth and make a noise much too similar to laughter. Ambrose and I crouch. We move slow, feeling along a far wall, looking for a door or window untouched by the murk and evil, neither willing to risk conversation, content in simply attracting no attention as we search. We are not as sneaky as we assume. Help! A thin voice screams. We know who it is. One of those things Keller was ordering to claw through our minds. If we were lucky enough to walk on without seeing her, we could have just ignored it. But neither me nor Ambrose were having a lucky night. Tina lay on the ground, ankle twisted at an unnatural angle. She looked toward us, pale, tear-soaked face all but hidden in the unnatural gloom permeating even the edges of the warehouse. When I felt the small hand grab me from behind, I was ready. In fact, I was almost surprised at the horror film level of directness of the ambush. But I put everything I had into a punch I assumed would at least give me some space, enough time to alert Ambrose and run. I was prepared to hit the child and get no reaction, knees bent, ready to sprint. But when I felt my fist shatter something, I I was stunned for a moment. Annette hits the ground with a sickening thud as her sister begins to sob. Nose, a formless blob. Quicker than I can ask, Ambrose is behind me with the knife. I stop her. Something isn't right. If it's a trap, it's been sprung. If it's psychological torture, it isn't working. It has to be something else. But it isn't any kind of logical argument that makes me kneel and begin to wipe tears and blood from the small girl's face. It was the confused look she gave me from the ground, the pure, childlike shock, as if she expected a reasonable answer as to why I punched her in the face. You're not going to hurt me, are you? I whisper, the world's dumbest question to be sure. Mr. Keller paid our dad for us to help him out. It wasn't supposed to be like this. He said we'd just have to scare some people. Me and Tina are really good at that. Annette's tone is far from the child's psychopath character she was playing. I help her to her feet. Ambrose looks significantly less convinced than I do. No way we take those things with us. The tall woman says bluntly. Then don't follow us. I'd rather die trying to do the right thing than do nothing. My tone is just as unforgiving. While Tina had issues putting weight on the ankle... It wasn't broken. Back where the world makes sense, it'd be an afternoon with an ice pack. In this little slice of aggressive cliché, deep in shadow, it might be what kills us. It takes hours of dodging long, finger-looking snakes and mastiff-sized frogs before we're sure the geometry of the place has been altered in ways that make no sense. But every step that seems like it could take us forward keeps taking us closer to the twisted epicenter of this party store purgatory. Light flickering from a giant bonfire, casting strangely purple-tinted shadows through a forest that becomes thicker by the minute. I'm transfixed by this encroaching sight as my hand finally hits something different from the damp cement walls. It's steel. I feel further. A door handle. Stop! I whisper harshly. Ambrose and the children listen. This door, it feels different. Less corrupted, less touched. 
I press the handle lightly, and for just a fraction of a second, I see a few pinpricks of daylight. A way out. But not for long. Okay, give this a wide berth, like ten feet. It's a pit, or something worse. I think I heard it breathing. I lie, grabbing Ambrose's hand as she does the same, guiding the girls far away from the door. Our group traveling deeper towards sounds of struggle and violence. The light from the purple flames illuminates the witch in a sickening strobe. True to form, she is stirring some noxious fluid in a massive gray cauldron. Twisted vermin and rodents, missing limbs, or with far too many, take places around her like late theater patrons. Keller looks like he's been down a much harder road than we have as he comes into the situation, literally guns blazing. One eye torn from its socket, jacket torn to little more than scraps. Blood freely flowing from wounds unseen but severe. Ingrid wears layers upon layers of shawls, rotten woolen cloaks and blankets. The bullets put soup can-sized holes in the garments, sending out sprays of blackened gore and flesh. But Ingrid reacts as if someone has put on loud music, nothing more than a momentary grimace as she turns to Keller, seeming to float over to the man, her mildewed, frayed skirt hems never quite touching the ground. He drops the gun, pulling that old hammer I saw before does nothing to black the strike, but it hits with a brilliant flash of pure white light, throwing the crone back a dozen feet into a feral crouch, and leaving her with one side of her ancient bird-like chest caved in. Somehow, this doesn't kill the woman. In a display that makes me feel like an insect fighting a person, Ingrid commands the world around us, trees form into a twisted, inverted crucifix. Vines, snakes, and roots twist together into gory, streaked tendrils, grabbing Keller, pinning him to the sacrilegious torture device with long, black spikes through his muscles. He screams, terror and pain competing for the right to be its primary cause. Ingrid turns towards us as the sodding round beneath our feet brings us to the old woman. Her face is nothing resembling human now, just a torn and deformed mess of hatred and a wrong old enough to bother God. Sorry about the Dollar General. Sheet ghosts and hissing cats sing children. But I thought it'd be fitting for the little brat. No hard feelings about getting caught in the crossfire, I hope. Grey drool falls slowly from her twisted, toothless grin. You miserable old bitch! I've got a hundred K word I learned, and now's as good a time as any to say it. D D is the last letter Ambrose says. I never found out if she had some kind of trick up her sleeve, or if she was just bluffing to get myself and the kids a little more time. Ingrid holds up her hand. Ambrose seems to be frozen. Not even a cold, fogged breath escapes her lips. Sorry, hon. But I'm gonna take that word from you. You wouldn't know what to do with it anyway. The old woman pulls her hand forward. Ambrose's lungs burst from her mouth, teeth and flesh hitting the ground. She has one brief second before she hits the ground, mangled and dead, where she realizes what happened. The girls are crying and fetal, 
locking her yellow bloodshot orbs with my eyes. She pulls back her clothing, revealing massive purpled wounds, thick, almost black blood dripping sluggishly from them. Go stir that pot. The foul old creature demands, as the trees above me move more with an almost insectile sentience. I realize I have no choice, and comply. I'm going to need some downtime for the next little while. That's what a whiny boy did to me. I could do it myself, or I could have someone help me, which could make my life easier. You'll never be able to be one of my kind, but if you do what I tell you, how I tell you, you'll be able to draw forces most of the world would never think possible. So, if you keep stirring that soup, I do what I need to do. As time goes on, you get to stir more and more of my soups and become more than mortal. Or, you try and stop me. I'm hurt, no doubt about it. If you had a nice gun, or sharp sword with a strong arm to swing it, you could stop me, be the hero of this story. But I don't think you have those two things, do you, child? The concoction I'm stirring is vile. The things I recognize make me gag. The things I don't scare the hell out of me. But the old woman is right. I don't have a gun or a sword. I don't even remember what happened to the knife. All of that seems so long ago. She stalks over to Keller as I stir. I see his hammer sitting on the ground. Neither of them see me pick it up. One hand still stirring the vile cauldron. Hands from every angle begin to flay the man's body. The way life has flayed his mind. Taking the strip and organizing them in near piles as Ingrid mumbles something about good components. She's enthralled. Keller's overwhelmed. It would take nothing to walk over and end this situation. But I'm not here by accident. If Keller read the fine print to the deal he made, he would have seen he was going to find one witch, one innocent, and one person who will ruin his life. Fate has given me my own reasons for staying, for letting this sad prick take me here and put me through his screwed up litmus test. And if I kill this woman with my own hands, it defeats my whole reason for being here. So I stir, waiting until I see one long black spike slide from Keller's arms. I don't scream. I simply say one word. The name of the woman who started all of this for Keller. I've been following this man for years longer than he knew of my existence, before he found the gee whiz witch's persona I put out there as bait. It cuts through the pain. He sees the hammer spinning end over end and manages to work his brutalized arm well enough to catch it. He merely taps Ingrid's leg. The shriveled limb explodes, sending the old woman to the ground. He rips the spikes holding his legs out, falling to the ground in an inflamed, nearly skinless heap. I walk over, slowly. Two dying people, struggling out of nothing more than spite to see who can watch the life drain from the other's eyes. There is no hero in this story. On the ground are two bitter old people, 
chewed up and spit out by life, both willing to bring death and destruction to anything around them for the sake of revenge. And me? I'm not some poor girl who got caught up in all of this. I'm someone who knows one fact that most people don't. Witches are, for the most part, born. But if someone is prepared and in the right place, at the right time, under the right conditions, well, you can take what makes one special for your own. I wasn't able to live my life with this knowledge without at least trying to take advantage of it. So as the last of Keller's life bled out of him, as the swaying trees and red-eyed creatures began to crumble and fade, as the walking corpse of a broken man found himself pounding nothing more than the shapeless gristle and bone, I found myself walking out of the building, walking down a new, dark path in life, but armed with one hell of a torch. I saw the girls one last time, holding each other up, limping toward the road as the first rays of morning light began to peek over the horizon. This was because of you? Tina said, her voice small and betrayed. Not at all. And if it were up to me, I wouldn't have brought kids, even interesting kids, into it. But I took advantage of the situation, something you kids need to learn. You're either going to spend the rest of your lives being experimented on or wielding what you're given to get what you want. Figure it out. I'm not a fucking role model was the last piece of advice I gave them before a car door opened. Seemingly, of its own accord, engine roaring to life at nothing more than an urging from deep inside of me. I could get used to this, I say, entering the vehicle. And, unfortunately for everyone listening, every day I'm getting more used to this. smelled of popcorn. Not just any popcorn, but the aroma of buttery, golden-popped popcorn from the movie theater. I spent $3.50 on it at the store, so it better tastes like the movie theater version. To go with it, there was a box of wine on the coffee table with a glass already filled in my hand. I'd never tried this brand before, so the fridge had a 12-pack of my favorite seltzers, if the wine didn't cut it. The TV remote was in my other hand, and I used it to turn on the latest season of dramatic doctors. The flashback of last season had just finished whenever my doorbell chimed. I groaned before hopping off the couch, slipping on my house shoes, and heading towards the front door. I took a sip of the wine still in my hand and unlocked the door. A man stood on my doorstep with a casserole dish and a big grin when I opened it. Hi, he greeted. Hello. I brought you some green bean casserole as a welcome to the neighborhood. He held the dish up a little higher as he announced it angling it towards me so I could somewhat see the crunchy top coat under the makeshift saran wrap lid. Isn't that a dish for, I don't know, Thanksgiving and Christmas, I asked as I swished around my wine. Well, I guess, he responded as he stared down into the casserole. My family kind of makes it year-round. Well, my family doesn't, I responded. I try not to make it sound cold, but I'm not sure... 
I hit the mark based on the sad puppy dog face he gave me. But thanks anyway. I began to close the door until he yelled, Wait! I opened it back up a little, just enough to lean my head and right shoulder outside. Yes? I said. I made it for you, he said, slightly disappointed. I sighed. I put my glass on the table beside the door and grabbed the dish. Thanks, I responded, before quickly shutting the door. I stood there for a few minutes before leaving the entrance, peeking through the curtain to watch his timid retreat. He had a somewhat confused expression, and I couldn't blame him. I just don't like people, honestly. They give me anxiety. I avoid them when I can. So much so that I even had a remote job that I made sure I could mostly use email correspondence. As I saw my front gate swing closed, I let out a breath of relief, picking up the dish and my wine glass. I debated whether a plate was needed or if I could just grab a fork. I shrugged, and I headed toward the kitchen to fish the utensil out of the silverware drawer. I made my way back to my perch on the couch before digging in. I was half an hour into an episode whenever I heard a knock at my door. For crying out loud, I whisper shouted. I stood up from the couch, wiped the casserole and popcorn crumbs off my shirt, and scurried towards the front door once more. I honestly expected to see the sad puppy dog dude standing there, but that wasn't what I opened my door to. What I opened my door to was a simple music box. It was a tiny little thing, with an even more delicate-looking ballerina attached to its top. She held a pinch pose, with legs straight in the air. Intricate yellow and purple flowers decorated her pink tutu, their vines twirling around her slender legs and sky-blue box. Inside said box, once you lifted up the lid that the ballerina stood upon, there were tiny little trinkets such as children's costume jewelry, coins from random countries, and the sentence, To my little ballerina, I will always love you inscribed on the box's back interior wall. I twisted the little copper knob on the bottom and listened to the beautiful notes as the ballerina spun on her stage. The twinkling notes were rather lovely to listen to, but I couldn't stop wondering why the man would come back just to leave a random music box. As I was just deciding to hunt down his house tomorrow to re-deliver the gift and his empty casserole dish, the thing was yanked from my hands. It smashed down onto my porch in the same position I had retrieved it from, shockingly unharmed. I backed away in confusion, my now empty hands lifting up a bit in a defense position. As suddenly as the music box had been stolen from my grip, my front door slammed shut, missing my face and hands by mere centimeters. Its forceful close had unleashed a gust of wind that pricked up the hairs on my arms. I backed away slowly from the door. I jerked my head to the right as my TV began to change on its own. The doctors, witnessing a drama that they had never faced before as nurses, started attacking them. A doctor ran to the screen full force, her face contorted in fear as she attempted to flee. A shriek tore from her lips as someone from behind repeatedly stabbed her in the jugular with a syringe. The last sound emanated from her lips were the words, Run, Gabby, before she began to choke on blood escaping from her lips and slumped to the ground and out of view. My mouth opened wide at her mentioning my name. It remained agape as the television turned itself off. I ran to my kitchen behind me and I grabbed the knife from my chopping block as I heard childlike giggles coming from all around me. I didn't think a knife would do much good at whatever was happening, but I've been better safe than sorry. 
However, before I could figure out an escape plan, I began to feel kicks and shoves coming from all directions as the giggles increased. Tugs at my hair combined with the hits as I was slowly backed into a corner. I want to play with you, the strange voice. It echoed throughout the room and sent a chill down my spine. Leave me alone, I screamed as the giggles overwhelmed my ears. The giggles suddenly stopped and were replaced by an aggravated roar as my head was forcefully shoved against the wall behind me and I instantly blacked out. I sat up on my couch covering my eyes as the morning sun glared at me through the blinds. My empty wine glass rested beside my thigh, having somehow missed my couch cushions and spilled all over my white rug. Ugh, I sighed in aggravation as I placed the glass on my coffee table. Accidentally knocking the TV remote onto the rug, I glanced up at said TV to see it asking me whether or not I was still watching Dramatic Doctors. I ignored it and picked up the remote before pressing the off button. My head was pounding. It felt like there was an incredible amount of pressure within it. Like I could take a pin and pop my head like a balloon for some relief. As I hopped off the couch, I headed towards the kitchen. I grabbed some pain medication from my medicine stash on the windowsill above my sink before grabbing a water bottle. Looking out into my backyard, I took some ibuprofen as I watched some squirrels chasing each other on the grass. My stomach rumbled, announcing that I was hungry, and I glanced at my counter to see the discarded casserole dish from last night. <sighs> Must have drank too much, I thought. I forgot I'd even brought this in here. I picked up a few of the crunchy onions from the top and absentmindedly ate them, thinking about how I would find the man's house to return his dish. At this moment, I remembered the horrible nightmare with the music box. The doctor's painful expression filled my mind, instantly making me lose my appetite. I turned around to face my island, and my heart dropped in my stomach as I saw a knife missing from the chopping block. Without thinking if possible murderers or demons were present, I instantly began to dart around my house searching for the makeshift weapon. I looked under couch pillows, cushions, even under the couch itself. I looked at nooks and crannies and every crevice in my house, but the knife remained hidden. My brain began to make up scenarios to compensate for what I, I couldn't make sense of, but I knew it wasn't just a dream when I touched the back of my head and winced at how sore it was. I decided I couldn't stay in that house any longer, so I got dressed, I grabbed the casserole dish, and I headed out the door. I looked all around my yard for the mysterious music box, but just like the knife, it was nowhere to be seen. I allowed myself a moment to admire the dried autumn leaves falling from the trees in my yard and the cool breeze on my arms before heading through my gate and out into the rest of the neighborhood. I walked down the road slowly as I surveyed my surroundings. It didn't take long to find my target, though. I saw him playing Wii Sports through his front window. I knocked on his door just as his me hit a home run. Well, howdy, neighbor, he greeted me enthusiastically. I handed him the half-eaten casserole dish. Could have finished it before you brought it back, he said. I made it just for you. Yeah, yeah, I said, half listening. Can you tell me a little about this neighborhood? Well, you're in luck, he started. I'm about to walk my dog so I could just show you. He walked down the walkway in front of his house, following his leashed golden retriever. The dog made a right turn out of instinct, and I followed him and his owner. By the way, stated the man, you never let me introduce myself last night. Uh, my name is Jonah. Gabby, I said, returning the favor. Nice to meet you, Gabby, he said. 
who were pointing at a house across the street from us. That's the Johnsons. They're a really nice family, husband and wife, two daughters who are both in high school. Real good people. He put it at another house beside him. That's the Rivieras. They're hardly ever home, really. They go on a lot of vacations. We slowly walked down our street as he explained who lived in each house with a short explanation of their lives. Our last stop was a two-story that lived at the very end. The road in front of it, a cul-de-sac. The house gave off an aura of gloom, despair, and darkness. It was a big and brooding thing with boards nailed over most of its windows. But I couldn't tell you whether it was to keep outsiders from looking in or to keep what was in from coming out. I could tell you that the mere sight had put me on edge and caused a trail of goosebumps to spring upon my limbs. It had a jungle of a yard full of weeds that were en route to dominating the porch after having already conquered the concrete walkway. That combined with the stack of mail sitting in front of the front door and water falling out of the letter slot led me to believe that the house's uncomfortable exterior were due to abandonment. That place looks rough, I announced. Jonah's dog began to whimper as we stopped in front of the beastly house. It wouldn't stop until Jonah was kneeling down beside it with the animal's head burrowed under one arm like it was trying to hide from the house. That house, started Jonah, is the McFarlane house. Well, I jokingly call it the little ballerina house. Ballerina? I asked. His images of the music box flashed in my mind. Yeah, a little girl who lived there took dance classes every week, he explained. I remember her dancing around their driveway in her little tutu all the way to the car, he said with a slight chuckle as he reminisced. She was a sweet little thing. Was? His expression became a touch darker before he responded. Yeah, was. Her father was deployed whenever the accident happened. Something along the lines of her climbing a tree in her backyard while her mother was inside, and she was all the way up at the top and, um, fell. Hit her head pretty hard, and, um, she never woke up. Wow, I said. It was the only response I could come up with for such a short, sad story. Yeah. Yeah. A dad took it pretty hard, I heard. I ex he explained more as he stood up from the ground. The dog didn't seem to be too fond of this movement, but I noticed that Jonah had a habit of talking with his hands that couldn't be stifled. According to the neighbors, that's, uh, that's what ended their marriage. But you never know. You know, the full story. Just until you go directly to the source. <laughs> you know? I nodded as I kept listening. But I do know she moved out less than a year after her death, he continued. I remember the day because it was the same day the windows got boarded up. Now, no one knows what happened to the husband. Some think he got deployed somewhere else. The house has never been sold. So uh, there's some other rumors that he's just, he just holed himself up in there. It's so sad, I responded. I debated telling Jonah about my dream, but I was scared that he would think I was insane. The words felt like they were itching to come out of my mouth, though. Yeah, yeah, it really is, 
he agreed. For a split second after that, I could have sworn I saw a small figure dart from one of the house's upper windows that hadn't been boarded up. Is that a sign from the house that I should tell him, or was I actually losing my mind? Why did he leave that one window alone? I asked. Uh, I'm not sure, honestly. Neighbors say it might have been her window, but I've never seen anyone in it. I saw her, I blurted out without thinking. What? He asked, confused. Well, not really her, I said. I think it was her music box? I'm not sure. It had a ballerina on it, though. What in the world are you talking about? His face was full of bewilderment. I couldn't tell for sure, but... I felt like I could see a tinge of fear in his eyes. I... I had a dream last night about her, I explained. He opened his mouth, but I butted into him to explain more before he could tell me that I was out of my mind. Well, it was... I, I can't exactly piece all of last night together, but I had what I thought was a dream. A music box showed up at my door with a ballerina, and weird stuff started to happen when I played it. Like... Like something attacking me that wasn't there. Uh-huh, he said, face scrunched up in confusion still. I know you probably think I'm crazy, but I promise I'm not. I don't think it was a dream because I grabbed a knife out of my chopping block to use for protection, and now I can't find it in my house. And at the end of the dream, something shoved me down, and I landed on the back of my head, and I can feel a sore spot where I landed. So, was it a dream, or wasn't it? He asked. I'm, I'm not quite sure... I admitted while staring at the house. But how strange is it that I had a dream thing about a ballerina and there was a child laughing? Actually, now that I remember it... Did you watch any scary movies last night? No. But there was a really weird episode of Dramatic Doctors. I think the ballerina did that too. You do realize you're not making a lot of sense, right? He asked me, but his dog began to whimper again before I could respond. He bent down and began to rub the dog on its head. Yeah, let's get you home, buddy, he said to it. He walked back to his house and stood on his porch while he let the golden back inside. Just come to my house tonight. I'll, I'll explain it better, I said. He nodded and said, I'll bring another casserole before heading inside. And bring one he did. I don't know if the timing was intentional, but I heard my doorbell ring at precisely 5 p.m. This time, with a potato casserole waiting for me, the cheesy dish smelled... heavenly, and was much needed after the last few hours I spent practically destroying my house, searching for the knife. I still hadn't found it, leaving me absolutely dumbfounded. Instead of eyeing the monstrosity, Jonah immediately told me to sit down on the couch and headed for the kitchen. A few minutes later, after I had started up a new episode of Dramatic Doctors, he brought me a plate of casserole and a beverage. So, what's up with all this crazy ballerina stuff you talked about earlier? He said before blowing on a forkful of steaming hot casserole. I swear it's not crazy, I began explaining. And I don't think it was a dream either because I can't find the knife. I've been looking for it all day. Ah, oh, okay, that's why your house looks the way it does. He decided before popping the bite of casserole in his mouth. Yeah, I kind of went overboard, I admitted. But it's driving me crazy that I can't find it because that means everything that happened last night must be true. 
Okay, tell me exactly what happened last night. I sighed before pausing the TV show and placing my plate on the table. I can't believe I'm telling you this, I admitted. I don't normally socialize, but I feel like I'm going to lose my mind if somebody doesn't believe me. Oh, I can tell you don't socialize. What's that supposed to mean? Well, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but you don't really have good conversational skills. He admitted. I stared at him, waiting for him to explain more. You're literally proving my point right now, was all he said. He got an eye roll as a response. Just tell me what happened, he said, before taking a sip of his drink. So I explained. I explained every last detail of last night down to the bloody battle featured on Dramatic Doctors. I tried to show on the strange episode, but it had apparently disappeared from the streaming platform altogether. You know, this doesn't make your argument strong, right? Yeah, 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 I responded, unable to hide my annoyance as I flipped through the movie selection to find something to watch. But I swear I'm not lying. I don't think you're lying, but... I don't know, Gabby, he said with a shrug. I mean, there, there could be a million explanations. The sound of him slurping on his drink sent me into an even deeper aggravation, so I just didn't respond. I pressed play on a movie called Zombie Slayer before picking up my plate to dig in once more. Ding! Called out my doorbell. It was heard in my dream, but I didn't budge from my position on the couch. It rang a few more times in quick succession, which woke me. My eyes shot to Jonah just as he woke up and met mine. He rubbed the sleep out of his eyes while yawning, jumping at the doorbell ring once more. I slowly got up from the couch while making a shh motion with my finger to my lips. I watched him roll his eyes before I began creeping towards the door. Before opening it, I grabbed the vase sitting on my table by the door, ready to bash any possible threat in the head, whether they were wearing a tutu or not. I lifted my arm while ignoring Jonah's pleas for me to calm down, prepared for the worst. In one quick motion, I flung open the door to see... No one. Not even a music box. There are kids in the neighborhood that like to play Ding Dong Ditch. His voice was a possible explanation. I've been ditched many times before. I'm not so sure about that, I said. I peeked my head out of the door and glanced around my porch and yard. I didn't see anything, though, only the final rays of the day's sunlight. As I turned towards the couch, I accidentally bumped the vase against the table beside me. I quickly caught it, but the coating was too slick for my sweaty hands. It slipped from my hands and a loud bang came from the back door, causing us to jump. A cacophony of amused guffaws surrounded us, sounding like a demented kid in a candy store. Jonah jumped up from the couch and stood beside me. He tried to speak to me, but I couldn't understand what he was saying over how loud the laughter was. It became so powerful that I felt my eardrums would burst at any second, and I fell to my knees while covering my ears. I ground my teeth as sounds of glass breaking were heard from the kitchen. The uproarious laughter became breathless, becoming too uncontrollable. Plates began flying down the hallways, landing in piles of broken bits just before us. I looked up from my perch on the ground and saw an angry expression overtaking Jonah's face. He was about to head that way and follow the bait, but I grabbed his arm to stop him. As we were both looking towards the kitchen doorway, a knife flew towards me at a speed I could barely comprehend. It whizzed by my head, missing it by merely millimeters. The breath caught in my lungs, released at that moment, making me cough incredibly hard and realizing I had forgotten to breathe. My eyes widened as I looked at the knife stuck in the wall behind me and realized... It was my missing one. 
More sounds of dishes breaking continued to be heard, but the laughter had begun to die down, sputtering into robotic chunks. What do you want? I asked, voice shaking. The deep silence filled the house. No more sounds of glass breaking or laughter were heard, and it became so quiet you could hear a pin drop. He stayed frozen, standing between the doorway outside and my staircase. I debated latching onto Jonah's arm and dragging him out the door. But I was too afraid to move. A shift in the air sent me even more on edge, and I stepped backwards just a bit. A moment after I did, the cause of the change was before me and had flung me into the front door. A vicious grip was now around my throat, choking me as I was lifted off the ground. A crackling was heard around the house as all the light bulbs blew, leaving us in complete darkness minus the dull glow from the TV. I couldn't see my attacker, but I could smell rotting death. I want you, roared the figure. The windows in my living room and dining room were flung open so hard the glass had shattered, and I began to hear panicked screams coming from Jonah as another dark figure dashed past the window. Childish giggles floated through the window as the figure darted back and forth, running through the chirping cicadas. The grip on my throat was released, and I had a moment to breathe before the door behind me was opened. I fell flat on my back, knocking the rest of the air out of me. I heard the screams become more intense in front of me as I was dragged off my front porch and down the walkway kicking and screaming down the street as the overhead lamps illuminated our struggle. The only reason I knew Jonah was being carried with me was his cries for help. I tried to grab my captor's hands, but my hands were slapped away. I gave up trying as my shirt began to rise. I tried my best to hold it down, but the thin fabric tore from the amount of friction that it was being dealt. My skin was rubbed raw as I was dragged down the blacktop. I felt like it was being ripped off of my body in a stringy, disgusting mess, but I wasn't sure if that was possible. Our protests of pain did nothing to deter our captors. I'm not sure why I saw no lights being turned on and the windows or front doors opening, but it made me feel like we were the only ones in the world. It felt like an eternity before we made it to the house. Pain racked my spine even more as I felt grass, weeds, and rocks being burrowed in as I was pulled up the yard. My head bounced off the porch's wooden steps as we entered the premise, and I released a sigh of relief as I was discarded onto the floor like roadkill. However, my relief did not last long as I heard Jonah's screams begin once more. A dark figure was leaning over him as it repeatedly stabbed him in the neck reminding me heavily of the doctor from the TV show's death. Jonah's screams bounced off the walls and echoed through the room. Blood spurted from his body upon each impact as my eyes fluttered shut, and defeat took over my body. Everything was black for a while. The squeaking of a rusty wheel turning is what awakened me. I attempted to rub my head only to realize my hands were burning intensely. I slowly and painfully lifted one up a few inches from my face, the dark making it difficult to see, and I cried out in horror when I noticed a hook piercing through the middle of my palm. Wires were connected to the hook, and I realized the noise of the turning wheel was coming from me each time I moved my arms. As the strings began lifting me, I shrieked in pain, and the wheels screeched too as they were put to work. As I became suspended in the air, I realized my feet too had hooks. Burning pain seared through my limbs as I hung there. It was all I could focus on until I heard a sound that I'd recognized, a twinkling off in the distance. I did my best to look around me, but the lighting was too horrible. 
and moving my neck sent waves of agony through my body. I heard, I heard the sounds of wheeling once more, and I winced, waiting for the suffering to commence again. I soon realized it was coming from somewhere off in the distance. A figure was brought before me, which was hanging from hooks as well, and I recognized far more than I wanted to. I was, was forced into an up-close and personal meeting with a monster that had killed Jacob. Plaster forced her gray, loose skin into a feral-looking smile. Her teeth bared and exposed. Her cheeks had been remade with chicken wire formed into balls and covered in plaster, made so large that they covered her empty eye sockets a bit. A dusting of cherry-red dust decorated the flaky white patches that still clung to the exposed wire, and dramatic fake eyelashes were placed upon the remaining skin of her eyelids. They loosely draped over another section of her sockets, leaving a tiny area of the dark void showing. Her mannequined expression remained still, even as I heard her laughter. Her upper half slowly shifted towards me as a loud, creaking noise met my ears. I just barely felt her tutu graze me when she was jerked back to where she had come from by her strings. Her laughter quickly stifled. Now, now, Maddie dear yelled her father. You know, the point of these little treats is that you learn patience, sweetie. He spun me around to face a brick wall covered in all sorts of tools, hammers, screwdrivers, saws, and more than I could name. The lighting was so dim that I couldn't tell if the devices had a coating of rust or dried blood, but I wasn't very hopeful that it was the former. I'm sorry, miss. What did you say your name was again? He asked me. He stared at me, waiting for a response that I couldn't give. I was absolutely frozen with fear. Gabby, right? I'll call you Gabriella. He walked towards me, grabbing the hook sunk into the flesh of my right palm and tugged on it. I swear I could practically feel the rust biting into me, scratching and tearing at the inner workings of my hand. Maddie just likes to play, he said, while looking into my frantic eyes. But her playthings never last long, so... Don't worry. He gave me a smile before slowly backing away and heading towards the exit. I tried my best to scream out, mumbled pleads bursting out of my mouth as I struggled to unfreeze my shocked body, but I, it was no use. He ignored me as he retreated and the door slammed behind him. As I heard her giggles emanating from behind me, I mumbled, begs for her to spare me. Maddie, no... I screamed. Her laughter mixed with the grinding rust sounded worse than nails on a chalkboard. She slowly lifted one arm and more pain coursed through my body as I struggled to lift my arm to cover her first attack. My, my mouth fell open to let out a scream only for the noise to die down in my throat once I realized the item in her hand wasn't a weapon, it was a mirror. She was showing me myself. What? I gasped, choking a bit of my words. What did you do to me? White makeup was caked onto my face. Bright red lipstick and rosy red cheeks decorated it more. With thick, fake eyelashes sitting on my eyelids, I noticed dark brown stains all over my shirt, so I looked down and realized it wasn't even a shirt. His bandages wrapped around my body with spots of brown scattered around it. I, I feared that the section covering my back had more than just spots. 
tears began to well up in my eyes as I realized I looked like the live version of Maddie. Barely alive. More than her. I wanted a new friend, she croaked out. Her voice sounded somewhat robotic and scratchy, like it hadn't been used in a while. Randomized chirps mixed with her words as if she couldn't quite figure out what tone to give off. Someone like me. I'm not like you, I responded, the tears beginning to flow down my face. You will be, she promised. Time to play, she said before emitting another set of giggles. Before I could ask what that meant, huge stage lights suddenly illuminated the room, finally showing how horrible I looked. The despair on the outside of the house was nothing compared to the inside. There were holes so gaping in the room's hardwood floor that I, I couldn't see anything but darkness below. Similar holes in the walls gave me glimpses into other dark rooms. Peeling and yellowed wallpaper surrounded the rest of the still intact wall, barely hanging on by a thread in some places. Brown splatters dotted the paper's design, and I knew, I knew that wasn't rust. The door opened once more as Mr. McFarland stepped back in and announced, It's time for dance classes, girls. <laughs> what? I asked. My question was answered as I was jerked up higher into the air and violently rocked up and down repeatedly. Blood began to pour from my aching wounds as tears ran down my face. I began to scream as I heard another body being wheeled up next to me, and I saw that it was Jonah's corpse. His head was nearly decapitated from the attack, hanging only by a sliver of skin and tendons. It hopped up and down as his wires controlled him. Maddie jumped willingly and giddily beside us as flakes of plaster ran down from her body. She mimicked traditional ballerina poses as her dad yelled something I couldn't hear over the music. Please stop, I begged. Please! I begged and screamed until my voice gave out and I was ignored the whole time as dance class went on and on. I couldn't tell you when I left it. All I knew was one minute I heard a jarring mixture of Maddie's giggles and the nutcracker being played on an out-of-tune piano, and then I didn't. Everything became blurred and distorted as a dim version of life surrounded me. My senses felt numb, and I felt like nothing but a placeholder in life. This felt nearly like a pit stop before my death. I'm not sure how long I was in that daze, but I came out of it when I felt strong hands in my arms. I jerked my dull stare up from the ground and my sluggish brain speeding up as adrenaline filled my body. I prepared for another fight for my life, only to realize my attacker looked just as scared as I did. His lips moved, but I couldn't hear what he was saying at first. What? I'm going to get you out of here, he responded. I lifted his chest and saw a badge that read Officer Allen. I held up my arms as a reply showing my hooked hands. I cried as he removed them, not only because of the pain, but also out of relief that it was over. Where are they? They? He asked with a confused tone. The man and his daughter. The man, he started. He, he shot himself when we got here. And the ballerina? The doll's over there. He looked off somewhere in the room and grimaced. Is she dead? I asked. 
He didn't respond, though, and just gave me a sorrowful expression. They'd told me I'd been in there for three days, my wounds becoming so bad that I immediately got shipped to the nearest ICU by ambulance. Three days of no sustenance or rest as my brain felt like it was just slowly dying. The doctors didn't understand how I hadn't bled out, and I hated the way that they looked at me like I was a specimen rather than a person. A psychologist came to check me out. She told me how strong I was to survive through all of that. She said the brain could do amazing things to combat trauma. And the trance I was in for those three days is proof of that. They also told me the ballerina had never been alive, even though I argued with them until I was blue in the face. The father had formed a doll with his daughter's rotting corpse. He tried to use plaster and chicken wire to maintain the decay. Most of the organs had been removed by him to prevent it from decaying more rapidly. I tried to explain how I knew there still had to be something in the ballerina that was alive, that it, it had attacked and interacted with me, but they told me that fear can do weird things to our perception of reality. I tried to make myself believe what they had said is true, to give myself some sense of security. But it still doesn't do much to help. The fact that she hangs above my bed every night, suspended and grinning a few inches from my face, doesn't help either. <laughs> 